The only difference that affects our output, our ability to produce is leverage. It's what do we multiply our time by? There's only four. There's called them the four C's, right? There's content. This podcast, we record it. It can be listened to by 10 million people. It changes nothing in our lives. Huge leverage. Code, right? Automation, software. Literally all software is designed to increase the output of a person's time. Third is capital, right? It's all small businesses. We like borrow money from friends and family to like put it into a business that then transforms into more, right? And then the fourth is collaboration. Welcome to the Relentless Entrepreneur Podcast. They've been trying me, but I'm resilient for real. Follow your path to success alongside icons. I like thought of profit, man. I hardly do percent. And industry leaders in martial arts and fitness. I'm a hard hitter. Hey. This is the Relentless Entrepreneur Podcast. Let's get it. And now, Adam Kiefer. All right, guys. I am so excited for our guest today. He has a brand new book out that is amazing called Buy Back Your Time. And guys, Dan Martell is the man. I can't wait for you to hear his story and hear about his new book. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing incredible, Adam. Thanks uh, for being on here. Our mutual friend, Ron Sell, has obviously shared so many great things about you. And it's it's an honor. I'm just uh, excited to talk with your, your audience. Yeah, same thing. I, I know Ron's a great guy and uh, I was so happy he got us connected and Good to finally meet you, at least virtually for now. Um, but I, I was really, really uh, impressed as I was sort of doing some research into you. You have a very interesting and unusual backstory. Um, and I always think it's cool to sort of see what people have overcome to get to where they are, because I think a lot of times the audience just sees the finished product and they're like, well, that guy's there because he has money or, or whatever, and they don't know the full story behind it. So I would love... Uh, for you just to share with our audience about your upbringing and and sort of some of those challenges that you went through early on in life and had to overcome to even uh just get on the right path in life yeah i appreciate that adam it's um it's kind of crazy looking back because you know when i when i think about it there's like people that like you know started at like ground zero pretty much i started in a huge freaking hole like i grew up in a family with an alcoholic mom. Um, I'm the second oldest of four. My dad was in sales and just trying to provide for the family. So he was traveling all the time, you know, not, not home often. And I pretty much raised myself. I, um, I got diagnosed with ADHD when I was 11. And I also, you know, through a lot of like different things I discovered later in therapy, I just like, I developed like an anger issue and I was like incredibly upset at the world. And that just like translated to becoming a kid, a young man, a teenager that um, didn't understand my emotions and honestly had very little self-esteem. I just, you know, I would get so upset and I would just be, you know, my self-worth was almost zero. Like I would, I remember like, and it was almost like I, my anger was a way to overcome that belief, like to just try to like be significant or like, be seen, you know, in, in the world. And it got so bad that my parents, um, had to put me in, in, the in a crisis center initially, and then eventually released a group home and a foster home and literally spent the next five, six years in the system, um, ended up in prison a couple of times. And what kind of really, uh, was the moment in my life where I decided I had to take a different approach. Um, 
was I was, I was high and drunk in a stolen car and I took a, like a routine, like uh, exit off the highway to get some gas. And there was a roadblock that was set up just to check driver's license and insurance. And uh, when the police officer asked me to like pull over, cause I didn't have my driver's license. And I lied and said it was my mom's car. I just took off. And it's just like, ended up in a high speed chase. I had a handgun sitting next to me in a backpack that, you know, I had, um, I had made a commitment to myself that if I get pulled over by the police that I would pull the gun and let them take my life. And I ended up in a neighborhood kind of ahead of the police. And, uh, I pulled into the driveway going way too fast. And I smashed into the side of the house and like airbags went off, no seatbelt. And I went for the gun and I started pulling on it and it got stuck. And I, I just remember like, just, I, I just, in my head, I would just remember like, I'm going to pull point and that was going to be it. And before I knew it, the door opened up and the police grabbed me and literally, you know, I floated across the front yard and thrown in the back of the cop car. And I woke up sober the next morning in a jail cell, wondering why I was still alive, you know, really questioning who was looking out for me and is there a God? And I just, I remember speaking to whoever in my mind that was listening and just said, like, if you help me get through this, you know, I was just at such a rock bottom place and I didn't know what that meant. You know, I didn't know what I was facing. Um, but I would just like make a commitment to change my life. And there was no grand plan. It was literally like, I will just be a better person. And I ended up getting sentenced to almost two years due to the severity of my crimes. There were some other things that I'd been involved in. Obviously I had a, uh, you know, kind of a background. Um, and I did six months in an adult prison due to the severity of like the, the stolen vehicle and some, um, possession of handgun and whatnot. And, uh, and it was after six months of like doing the work, there was like a, a cell block dedicated to juveniles. And that's where I was at in the adult prison in, in the East coast of Canada where I grew up. And I got released, uh, somewhat good behavior, even though I did get in a fight, but I got released to a place called Portage, a rehab center. And I literally did 11 months of therapy, working on my feelings, understanding what made me tick, um, telling my story, rewriting the meaning, rebuilding the relationship with my parents, the trust that I had lost. And it was just like this very challenging process. Like I would love that it was three months and I was sober and it was, it was not, it was like effort. Like I went through a deep transformation and what happened was, is like towards the end of that program, I was helping Rick, the maintenance guy, clean out one of the cabins. Cause it was built this rehab center called Portage is built on an old church camp. And in one of the cabins, uh, we'd never been in, we were cleaning it out and there was a room and in that room was a desk and a old computer, a 486. If anybody remembers like these old computers and next to it, a yellow book on Java programming. And I'd never touched a computer in my life. Like I obviously had seen one, but you know, we didn't really have access to one as, as a family. And this is 97. I, um, I started the computer up and just followed the instructions in this, this book. And within 20 minutes, I, I got the computer to print out hello world. And I thought, maybe I'm a genius. Like maybe there's, it was so funny, the, the, the beliefs I had, because I was like, oh, I've never touched a computer. And I, and I got it to do this thing. And this is a programming book. And, you know, people that read these books are probably like computer science, technical people. And, 
I just thought maybe my brain was broken one way, but like created this like way of seeing patterns. And, uh, and that was this, that became my new obsession. And I got out and entrepreneurship, I'd always been entrepreneurial. I, unfortunately, nothing legal. But sure. once, you know, my dad would joke if I just find something that was not legal that I was passionate about, he'd think I would do well in my life. Turns out he wasn't wrong. And I got out and I discovered this small thing called the internet. Um, again, 97, 98. And since then, I've had the privilege of, you know, building. I failed a couple of times, got some really good big failures out of the way. And then when I was 24, I just, I, I finally hired a business coach, this guy named Bob. He was an e-myth coach. And I, I started reading business books, which sounds obvious to a lot of listeners, but I wasn't that clever. <laughs> took me seven years, literally of like building, like actively building, like going to school and then writing code and like just trying. And uh, when I was 24, I finally kind of started to figure out a few things about business and became a millionaire when I was 27, sold the company when I was 28, um, moved to Silicon Valley, you know, to see if any of my crazy ideas would like hold water with the best in the world. And again, just kept plugging away and learning about how to buy back my time and build teams around me and all these things. And ended up building two venture back companies in a five or six year period and exited those. So it's crazy. Cause like I went from like failure 17, well, my whole life, but like in business, you know, trying at them, just like wanting to be successful. And then finally, when I was 24, I started to put together the pieces and then in a 10 year period had built and exited three companies. And I share that because like, I think some people, it's kind of like the bamboo tree, right. Or the shoot, like you bury this seed and you take care of it for five years. You literally water it, give it nutrients, take care of it, protect it. And it takes so long, but once it cracks, you know, it breaks through the earth and it starts to go in 90 days, it'll, it'll grow like 50 feet. Right. And I just feel like that's what happened is, is like, I, I started reading books. I had a business coach. I moved to the Valley. My environment completely changed. I learned new strategies and then I just, it just compounded. And today I, you know, I'm the CEO of two eight figure companies. Uh, SAS Academy is the largest software CEO coaching company in the world. We have a thousand active clients. And then I have high speed ventures, which is my investment uh, firm. So we've invested in 50 plus software companies. Uh, it's my own capital. I've, I don't raise a fund. I just literally deploy and invest in companies. I've had $4 billion exits. And, um, and that's, that's kind of what my life looks like today. And I do a lot of work with that risk youth. It's a big part of my life, but that's, that's the, the systems thinking that I talk about in the book comes from writing software, like literally database design and architecture and, you know, the left brain side, I was very introverted when I started and I had to learn how to be a CEO. Um, but that's, that's my story. I, I absolutely love that. And when, when do you feel like it sort of clicked for you, the concepts and buy back your time? Like, when did that really start going into action for you? Was that? It took a while. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't, I would say it wasn't until I was about 28 and I was, you know, when I built Spheric, that was like my first successful company. I started when I was 24 and all I knew was one gear work as hard as you can be as productive as you can. So I like read all the books, getting things done. Like you name the productivity books, the Brian Tracy's eat the frog, like you, you name it. I read it. Like I was committed 
Cause that's all I knew. But the problem was, is that like, you know, I built the company to like 35 people and, and they kind of depended on me. Right. Even though I had some leaders and stuff, the end of the day, I didn't understand how to buy back my time. So I was working hundred, 120 hours a week. I mean, it was so bad. I was, I was engaged uh, to a woman back then and I had a fiance and like, I was traveling 250 days a year. I was working, I, you know, like maybe one night on the weekend, we would do something together. My best friends would like literally like jab at me because like, you know, I would be the guy that shows up to like a birthday party with a laptop and sit in the living room, you know, working on contracts, proposals, and emails until 1130. Yeah. And like, they're, they're like, why are you even here? And I'm like, I'm the best friend in the world. Like I could have not come cause I'm busy, but I wanted you to know that I care about you. So I showed up and like, these are the kind of things that I did. And what happened was, is it was, uh, I think it was like May, 2008, it was on a Sunday and I came home after working in the office all morning and I was supposed to be back around 11. It was like two o'clock. And when I pulled into my driveway, we had just bought this house, my fiance at the time. And I walk in and she's in tears in the kitchen and just takes the ring off and drops it on the counter and just says to me, I can't do this. And literally like, you know, when a woman says they're done, she was done and she walked past me and went to her parents' house and seven weeks before the wedding. So like that was, that was like earth shattering. It really affected my, my identity. And, and like, I had all these stories I was telling myself, about like, I'm doing this for her and our future and our family and all these things. And the truth was, is like, I just, I just did not know how to be a hard charging CEO and a friend, a brother, uh, partner, et cetera. Like I was just horrible at it. And I would say that was like the beginning of really forcing myself to reevaluate how I look at time and giving myself permission to overcome the beliefs that I just believe that weren't true. Right. And that's why in the book, I think chapter three, I talk about the time assassins. Like there's all these beliefs that we have that are stopping us from having more. But when I moved to San Francisco, I met a guy named Naval Ravikant and he he's built angel lists. And he, before that he's, you know, an incredibly well seasoned entrepreneur. And he's the one that talked to me about leverage, you know, and like, and, and what people don't realize is like time is a constant for all of us, right? Adam, like you have the same amount of time as I have. The only difference that affects our output, our ability to produce is leverage. It's what do we multiply our time by? And Naval's the one that's shared with me, there's only four. There's called the four C's, right? There's content. This podcast, we record it. It can be listened to by 10 million people. It changes nothing in our lives. Huge leverage. Code, right? Automation, software. Like that's my world. So like literally all software is designed to increase the output of a person's time, right? Like that's why it exists, right? It captures information. It increases workflows. It automates things. Third is capital, right? It's all small businesses. We were like borrow money from friends and family to like put it into a business that then transforms into more, right? And then the fourth is collaboration. And that's the people side. And that's what I really dive in in the book is I wrote a book about like how to look at your time, how to value it, how to identify the, the areas that could create a painful future, how to get them off your plate. And then, and more importantly, if you do get the time back, what do you do with it to actually like up-level your output? Because a lot of people just get time back and then waste it. But that's, 
I would say moving to the Valley and, and meeting Naval and then just like playing with these concepts and strategies. And then for the last uh, five, six years, coaching the top, like the highest level CEOs of software companies and understanding like, you know, the only lever we've got to work with is how they allocate their calendar and what, what types of projects they work on. And does it like compound energy up or does it suck your energy down? Because we need to protect the CEO and the founder. We need like every entrepreneur out there needs to get their team on board with this because the moment you decide, I don't want to do this anymore, you put the whole team at risk. Like I, I coach these, these founders and I get the call when they're like, Hey, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to shut it down. I want to sell it. Like they get to a point where they've just architected their life in a way that is painful. It is. It's funny. I just going back to your, your story about your fiance that resonated with me so much because about four years ago, I had a very similar situation where I was sort of in the hustle culture and grinding it out, working like insane hours a week and came home and the divorce talk happened. And I didn't know how to do both. So I think very similar. It was an eye opening moment of like, all right, some things need to change in my life to make to make this work and to put importance. And I know you've talked about before that balance is bullshit. Um, and I 100% agree with that. So buy back your time, I think is such a good message to every entrepreneur listening, because it, it just allows you to prioritize important things in your life. And one of the things that was a theme throughout your book is especially with hiring, you're like, don't hire to grow your business, hire to buy back your time. And I think most entrepreneurs are in that growth mindset all the time. They're looking for growth hacks and advantages and all these things. And we always think, well, we just need to hire some more people to help us grow and get to the next level. And the timing of your book couldn't be better for me because we're getting ready to hire a COO and I'm looking through candidates and I'm like, oh, this person would compliment me, but this person could replace me. And just reading through that was, was great for me. For everyone listening, can you just dive in a little bit more to that concept about hiring to buy back your time and what that should look like? Yeah, I call it, you know, calendar over capacity, right? So most people hire folks to add capacity to their business. You know, I got to hire a developer, I got to hire a copywriter, I got to hire uh, a marketing person or a salesperson, whatever it is. Like they hit a they hit an area of their business and it's they, they it's a capacity problem. The challenge is is when you do that is you you end up with a lot of people and it doesn't make your life better, right? Like usually, and I've seen this, there's different ceilings. It's, you know, 300K is a ceiling. A lot of small businesses hit. The next level is about 1.2 million in revenue, 12 employees. And the reason why is because if you don't follow the buyback principle and, the, and I created this framework called the buyback loop that all my clients execute when they hit the pain ceiling is they'll end up waking up and just like, managing a bunch of people doing stuff. And then they look at their calendar and it's just full of like all the stuff nobody else wanted to do that has to get done. Right. And my approach is completely different where when I work with a CEO, the first thing we do is audit the calendar and identify the items that are energy takers, right. Versus givers and the least expensive things to hire to buy back your time right? Usually $1 sign to $4 sign. You just assess it, right? And I have a whole strategy on how to do what I call a time and energy audit in the book. But once I, I work with a CEO, we've identified you know, their last two weeks of their life and how that plays out. Then we have a bucket of things that are red, 
items that take energy from the person that are low cost to pay somebody else to do. That's where I add collaboration to the leverage, right? Because hiring somebody to take over those tasks. And for a lot of people, you know, in the book, I talk about the replacement ladder. Level one out of five levels of the replacement ladder is, is an administrative assistant. You talk about like hiring a COO. I, I tell people all the time, if you don't have, uh, you don't hire a director of operations or COO if you don't have first an executive assistant. An executive assistant can literally play that role, free up your calendar, free up your time, get you out of your inbox, get you out of your calendar so that you can play that role and be efficient, right? And then you work your way up and, and maybe eventually, and that's why the, it's a buyback loop. It just keeps going. You audit, you transfer, and then you fill it. Eventually you'll get to a place where like for me, I buy companies and I buy back my time by hiring CEOs to run the company, right? That's that level. That, that's like the very, very high level. That's Richard Branson. That's, that's people that are building their empire. But today, I just want people to stop triaging their own emails. Like for a lot of people, it's just, you should not be in your inbox, right? You should work with an incredible partner, an executive assistant, and build the systems and playbooks. And that's why I wrote about them in the book to get yourself free because it's just actually a better time trade. If you think about it, like every time you hire somebody, you want an ROI. Well, you're better off hiring somebody to free up your time for the least amount of cost so that you can take that time to go work on things that make you more money so that the difference between what you paid to free up that hour and what you're charging for that hour is as big as possible, right? And it's so it's really a math problem that I think once people see, I think they'll understand. But this is literally how all of the people you admire in entrepreneur world from even Gary V. Gary V's got a, a whole team of people. I think there's like 30 people on his team called Team Gary. And they buy back his time. They review content. They clip stuff out. They edit stuff. They And they're literally managing Gary's like world fly, like he has all these projects he's involved in and he communicates with his like assistant. And then they have a team of assistants and he just runs through the world. And as he's running through the world, these people are pulling in resources for him to interact, to do the things only he does. It lights him up. And that's like a two to 3 million a year payroll of people that sit outside his office that are just dedicated not even to Vayner. That's just to Team Gary. That's his own team of people that are executing the buyback loop, right? And it's just like you, if you actually scratch under the surface of all like the Richard Bransons and the Oprahs and the Warren Buffetts and all these things, you'll see like Buffett does this. He buys a company, he hires a CEO, a management team. They, they run the company. He doesn't run the company. What does he do that lights him up that makes him the most money is he's making investment decisions. He's looking at the 75 billion in cash on the balance sheet and saying, what's the next big acquisition? That's a Warren only and you know Charlie decision to do. That's not something you that that like if he delegated that, he wouldn't enjoy running the company. So, like that's the other part is some people hire out of the place where they're happy because. You know, they're like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to hire this person. It's like, no, if you like to manage products, stay managing product, but then have somebody else run your meetings and run the quarterly planning and run the, you know, the, the vision exercise. Like the thing still has to happen. You don't have to do it, but you got to evaluate it through time and energy, right? Because that's, man, if you can stack your day up full of things that give you energy, you're just going to show up completely different, right? And that's, that's the... As a CEO, you're allowed to do that. I'm giving people permission 
to evaluate their calendar and prioritize them first, because hopefully I make a strong argument that if you don't do this, you put the whole business at risk. So I, I know you talk about this in the book, but I, I have to bring it up because I know there's people listening that are thinking this and they're going, Dan, I can't afford an assistant. So what, what, what do you say to, to people that have that limiting belief? Yeah, well, if you, if you can't afford it, um, then you have to fix the business, right? Like, here's the reality is if you are the CEO of the business and you have any revenue whatsoever, then your time is worth money. Yes. And there is no other hire you could make minus an intern, which I'm a big fan of too. If you can't afford to pay somebody, try to get an intern, start there a virtual assistant out, you know, some third part, third world country, like you can pay three, $4 an hour to have somebody support you. It, the, the, the challenge for most people is not, they can't afford it. They don't, they don't trust themselves. Like it's really two things. Cause I've coached so many people through this is their beliefs around it is they don't know how to work with that person. And if the person actually frees up their time, they don't trust themselves to go work on the thing that they know they should be doing. They just been putting off anyway. That's why I put the time assassins first. Cause I'm like, Hey, you could free up half your week probably just by like not doing these things and cost you nothing. They're like self-inflicted sabotages. Sure. And then, okay. If you've gotten those out of your life, then let's work on like, how do you actually buy back your time? But you know, I talk about the buyback rate, which is understanding what your time is worth and, and what you should pay other people to do stuff. And that amount is it changes all the time based on the health of your business. But if you do anything that you can pay somebody else to do that's uh, less than your buyback rate, then it's just fundamentally inefficient. You know, $10 million companies were not built off $10 tasks. And a lot of CEOs have these like weird, you know, I have like my dad, you know, he, he owned rental properties and he would mow the lawn every Saturday and Sunday. And you know, I would like, why are you mowing the lawn? You can pay somebody. He's like, I like to do it. I go, well, if you like to do it so much, offer to mow your neighbor's lawn. He's like, well, I don't like to do it that much. And I go, exactly. You don't like to do it. Like you will do it. You have a sense of pride. You feel like you should do it, but you, you're not actually like, you should be going looking at real estate deals. Like instead of mowing your lawn for three hours or your, your different properties, you, you should either spend time with your kids, which would have been cool, or, you know, go look at, two or three or four other properties and go buy them to build your portfolio. That's something only you can do. You can pay anybody to mow a lot, right? And that's the whole like mindset shift that I really want to help the entrepreneurial community. It's the movement I want to create, which is I want to help people get free so they can do more, right? All my clients that I work with and I've taught this strategy for, they're, they feel free to do more creation, to give more, to be more, to you know, entrepreneurship is pretty cool. Cause like every day a business owner wakes up to make the world a better place. It's, it's in, it's built into the model, right? You can't be successful in business if you don't do that. Cause nobody will pay you because you're not solving a problem. Very so true. I think I just want to encourage more CEOs to do more art, to create more, to give more to their communities. And this is the only way you can do it because we can't manufacture time. We can only impact what we do with our time to get more leverage. Amen to that. And uh, what, one of the things, uh, going back, like you are so systematic in the book and I absolutely love it. It's not just giving information. It's it's here's steps one, two, three, four, and five to do it. Like we read, uh, well, I read through the book and the chapter about the assistant, like this morning I was talking to my assistant. I said, hey, we're going to read this together because even starting the inbox and all that stuff, I was like, we can be 
so much more optimized with how we're doing things because of this. Um, and one of the other things I love that you really broke down in the book was the different levels of, of trading, right? So I think you talked about the employee, the entrepreneur, and the empire builder. Empire builder, yeah. And um, I would love for you to sort of go through those with the audience, just because I think a lot of people don't know how to identify where they're at right now, or they don't even realize that they are trading uh, like time for money instead of money for time. And I think that is such important things for entrepreneur to be able to identify, hey, I'm at this level. Now I realize it. Now, what do I need to do to get from here to the next level? Because I think everyone wants to get to that empire building where you're just trading money for more money, um, but they don't really know what steps to take in order to get there. Yeah. One of my mentors when I was in my 20s, he's the one that taught me that. He said, look, Dan, the, the way the world works, whether you like it or not, is very simple, is we start off by trading our time for money, right? And that's employee. That's, that's our team members. And then if we keep pulling on that string, we'll realize that like, oh, at some point I'm making money. And if I buy more time with my money to do things that's more valuable, then I'm trading money for time, right? Like, you know, and that's, that's usually employee or an employer, right? So it's like, you have an employee that you have entrepreneur, right? So it's like time for money, then it's money for time. And if you keep going up that ladder and become what he called a better time trader, then we, then we get to a place where we're investing and we're, we're trading money for money. Right. And that's the empire side. Right. And some people go like, well, how do I do that as an employee? Like I, I make money and I live and all these things. I had a sales guy, um, that, you know, he was making six figures and on his own, he, because he hears like he watches the coaching that we do for our clients. And he came to the realization that like, he's better off paying for an assistant to do 60, 70% of the follow-up, the emails, the scheduling so that he can do more calls. He paid that. for it out of his own pocket. Okay. He, he, you know, whatever he's paying her 40, 50 grand a year. And then he took that time and doubled his income. He literally went from like 200 to 400 K a year in revenue. Then he took the surplus that he was making and then started investing in real estate. So here's what's crazy is you have a person that's an employee that used the exact same methodology I'm teaching in the book to up-level his ability to time trade to a place where he's now deploying his money into real estate and that real estate makes some money. So he's now gotten to become an empire, but I think he, he owns like 150 doors already. I mean, this is like in the last three years, like he just... He's like, it's crazy because he still sells. He has his assistant. His assistant helps him with the sales. His assistant helps him with real estate, right? He's still the one that goes and looks at the deals, but she does a lot of research and the back and forth and the closings, all these stuff. And then he's focused on like, how do I become a better salesperson to produce more, take the surplus and then put it back into real estate. And that to me is, is just a great example of how people should consider like this is the game of life, right? Becoming a better time trader is what we're here to do. And if you don't have those skills, that's what you got to buy back your time to go and invest in. That's the fill part. And I, I think that's, first of all, I think everyone wants an employee like that, <laughs> that thinks outside the box like that. Um, and I love that he went off and found someone himself to, to free up that time. And I think uh, one of the biggest things that I see when we coach entrepreneurs is they're afraid to give up control. And one of the things that you covered in the book that I think was so smart, and it was actually the first time I ever heard it was the 10-80-10 rule, where you're like, hey, you can still have some control over this. You, you start with the idea part, let your team execute, and then 
come back and and spot check it and, and make sure it's ready to integrate with the business. Um, number one, how did you come up with that? And number two, uh, I wish I had read this book like five years <laughs> earlier. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, talk a little bit more about that rule and and really how, how you've used it and, and how you've been able to coach up other people to, to integrate that rule. I, I, I literally use it all day long. The 10-80-10 rule is, you know, the 10% upfront ideation. Like that's truly like most... CEO founders are visionaries, right? Like some of them are not, they're more integrators and that's fine. But like most of them really get excited about like solving problems. But as soon as the problem is like directionally like kind of solved, they actually don't want to be involved anymore and they should just own that and then give that to somebody else, right? And then that's the 80%. And then the last 10% is, okay, once you've like put together everything and like based on what we talked about in the ideation step, then let's talk about integration. Let's talk about like how the rubber meets the road. And this is just like the pattern I saw in the Valley. This is how the top CEOs worked. This is how Steve Job worked, right? Steve woke up in the morning. He went over to the design studio with Johnny Ives. They ideated. Johnny took the ideas that Steve brought to him, went with his design team and prototyped and created and sourced materials and did different versions of stuff. And then Steve would come in at the very end and, talk about like how it's all going to come together and package it. And then he was the one on stage presenting it to the world. And you better believe like he took that process incredibly uh, like he, it was important to him just like how it would be presented and unfolded to the world. And I've done this with everything. Like I have, I have a very large coaching staff and that's, that's my rule. I'm responsible for outlining and designing the coaching frameworks we use. I teach it to the coaches. They go out and execute and implement with the customers. And then the last 10%, we have a feedback loop from our customers and our coaches to figure out where can it get better? And then that goes back to the problem of the ideation and somebody... Now, I actually have somebody that's head of product. That's what we call it, but essentially head of programming. And she manages the production line, right? But I'm only involved in the first 10% because I, I love that part. And then the last 10%. And then everything else is, is kind of like moving the production forward. And that's, that's to me, like, like you said, some people just can't let go because they're worried about control. There's actually a way you can set it up where you can just like, if you have those leaders in your team and you can just show up and ideate with them and then they run with it because they have experience and they come with playbooks. I mean, your capacity is, is unmatched. You can literally, that's how it works. You literally can just go from meeting to meeting in a week in 40 hours and literally do that 40 times. And that's 40 different work processes that are kicking off and all the heavy lifting is being done. And then you just get to review the final stuff to give your, your thoughts and the magic that makes it feel like it's your art, which is great. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I think you've done such a good job not only just touching on the business side of things and how to free up time, but I know in your book, you dive into a little bit on the personal side uh, and even like setting up the perfect week, which I love. Um, I, I sort of theme out my days throughout the week of, hey, this like Monday day is Fridays for me. That's when I, I do investing. And that's when I do it with my seven-year-old also. And we do his investing and we do that together and block that time off. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to really optimize the the personal side of things with buying back your time because i think a lot of entrepreneurs are so focused on the the business side of getting things done that the the personal side sort of an afterthought uh and i know that i, I think correct me if i'm wrong you even had like a family coach come in right uh to work with you guys and and I, 
yeah, the the personal side, I let I left it for the last chapter, and I call it the yeah. buyback life because I really wanted to help entrepreneurs get free of their business. But the truth is, is like the exact same principles apply to your time in general. So, for example, like a lot of people don't even give themselves permission to have somebody come in and clean their house a couple times a week, right? These are very beginner level trades or somebody do meal prep for them or somebody take care of the the maintenance of the lawn and, and the house and the outside. Like these are, these are very, those are very entry level time trades that just start there. Right. Like, and people are like, well, how do I pay somebody to do meal prep? You can literally go on Craigslist or whatever site, Facebook marketplace, and just say, like, I'm willing to pay $12, $15 a meal for this kind of healthy meal. Like, I, you know, that that's like the 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 easy version. I yeah. have, you know, I do the same thing, but a little different. My life is completely like next level because you know, I've been doing this for a long time, like over sure. a decade. But we have a we have a house manager that takes care of anything that would be deemed my wife or Dan's responsibility. So we call it the CEO of our life. And then my executive assistant is the CEO of my business calendar. And my house manager reports to my executive assistant and they synchronize things, right? So I'll give, I'll give people a sense of what that looks like. I haven't been to a grocery store in years. I do not fill up my car with gas. I do not clean my car. I do not set up the house. I don't purchase things for my home. I don't put things together. I don't do maintenance. I have multiple homes and, and vehicles and all this stuff and insurance and registrations and all the stuff that you would do to maintain your life is managed by our house manager. And as she's gotten busy, we bought back her time by you know having dedicated staff for like cleaning and our nutritionist that does the meal prep and all these other things and our chef and like um, but because of that, like my wife and I, we don't like argue about 95 or 98% of the stuff that people argue about. Think about that. Like yeah, sure. I don't have a honey do list. Betty's got a list and it gets done and it gets, it gets done the same day. Like this is what's crazy is like we, we use Voxer and there's different tools to do it, but we're just like, we're, we're, we're working with her to get the things done. And then that way, my wife and I like every night we have dinner together as a family. We hang out with our kids. We play with our kids. We go, we do date nights. We have, we, we invite friends over. We, I have, she has Mondays off to go spend time with her fam, fam friends or go to the spa. I have Tuesday nights, usually go mountain biking or snowboarding or whatever it is. And like, you know, we just, we built this rhythm of our life because we've applied the buyback principle into our personal life. And it's not something a lot of people think like someday when I exit my company, yep. I'll live that lifestyle. No, that's available to you today, right? It's decide not to buy a new supercar, decide not to hire a super expensive executive, like bring that into your life. Usually that is not a, I can't afford it. It's, I don't feel comfortable. Yes. Agreed. That's not an afford thing. That's a mindset belief thing. Cause I trust me, I've coached a lot of women and them more than the men have a problem with somebody cleaning their house because they're worried about what their mom might think because Hey, I know you're busy with your business, but you're too busy to take care of your family. You can't make the kids lunches. You can't clean up after like all these things. Right. Or there's fear of like, I don't want my kids to be entitled. So if somebody else is taking care of them and, and these are all solvable problems, like yeah. our house manager, knows she doesn't work for my kids. My kids, she's not, she's allowed to do zero for my kids. The kids don't flush the toilet. 
she goes and gets them and says, hey, you got to flush the toilet. They do their chores. They clean their rooms. They unpack their bags. They make their lunches. They literally, whatever they can do, they do. Our house manager works for my wife and I, right? You know, Shaq says it best. He said to his son, he says, I'm rich. You're not like, so don't act like you're rich. You better go get a job, you know, because once you're out of the house, you got no money. And like, that's, that's my philosophy. So I just think like a lot of people, it's a belief problem that's stopping them from inviting that level of support into their life. And yet they're the same people that say, well, I don't have time to go to the gym. I don't have time for date night. I don't have time to uh, go see my friends. You know, I haven't seen my family in a while. It's like, look, you can't say these are things that you have and not be willing to do the work to overcome the uncomfortableness of inviting people into your life to support you. This is, I'm not the first person to do this. This has been being done for decades and hundreds of years. It's just, you have to like sit down and do the work on the mindset to allow it. And you create jobs. Like I remember one client, his wife was adamant against it. Wouldn't allow him to get a cleaning lady was always complaining. She didn't have time for herself. And I was like, maybe we try the creating jobs for your community angle. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, technically she's being selfish because she could create job and employment. You, you have the, like this person was making a half a million a year in profit. So like you have the means to pay somebody to come in to clean, you know, a couple hundred bucks a week to clean the house. You're not doing that, which means you're not creating the employment and you're not supporting your community. And that was the kicker. And I will tell you today, his wife, that person has become an integral part of their life. And part of their family. And she couldn't imagine a world without that person. But prior to that, it was such a big decision. Now it's like a duh. Like if you ask my wife, she would get rid of me before she would get rid of our house manager. Like I know that for a fact. She's like, I love you, Dan, but like, no. So it's kind of like once, you know, my buddy Garrett says it best. He goes, once was a luxury soon becomes a necessity. Like a lot of this stuff, once you start, you know, you're a great executive assistant. It's like that that person's staying no matter what. Like I would sell everything I have before I would not have my executive assistant because the ROI on my time is literally 40 or 50 hours a week. It's a one-to-one. It's like every hour she works is an hour. I didn't have to do the thing that I would have to do. That's that's pure enhancement. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. We've, we've had that conversation. My executive assistant is actually in the room right now. So she's probably like, yes, say it, Dan. Yeah, she's I'll like, tell him, Dan, yeah. tell him. Same thing. Like she replaces so much of my time that she, like, even if we sold the company, I would find a way to keep her and bring her with me. You have to. I actually had a client, Jonathan, he exited his company for nine figures. And when we were walking through the exit, he was depressed because he was like, oh man, I can't believe I'm going to lose, you know, my assistant. You've been working with her for like nine years. And I was like, dude, put that in the agreement. Like that, your executive assistant is yours. She knows your family, your friends. She knows all the context and your emails. Like, no, 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 no. That person goes with you. And he's like, you can do that. I'm like, a hundred percent, like carve it out, put it part of the, ter-. and he, and he was so relieved. He was like, oh my gosh, you just saved my, like the only thing that was stopping him from wanting to exit the company was that. And I was like, no, no, no. that person, like my executive assistant is Dan Martell's. It's not my company's, right? Like this is a resource. This is a person that will be with me for the rest of my life. Like I, I there's a handful of people I tell in my world. I'm like, I want to work with you forever. I don't care what company I'm actively working on. Like I will, you are my resource in person. Like I will take care of you. I love that. And what, what, what you're speaking to as far as 
the 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 life side of things i totally experienced that when we first wanted to hire a nanny or i wanted to hire a nanny for our kids my wife was like well i'm not going to feel as much of a mother because of it and all this stuff and like she adores our nanny now and realizes how much like time value we get back in the sense that now the time is not just we're not distracted with anything else when we're with our kids we get to be completely invested in them because the nanny allows us to get the things done that we need to during the day so that we can have better quality time um and same thing with the cleaning side of things like uh my wife did not want to delegate that so i just surprised her while she was gone had someone come and clean the the house and uh she was sold on it from then on out so i think the surprise method also works if uh, that that's a good idea like just do it and ask for forgiveness after but like i remember the nanny like when we've had our first child um i wanted to like step up as a husband and help out so in the middle of the night we did shifts, right? She was like 8 p.m. to midnight and I would do midnight to 6 a.m. And that was really wishful thinking until I realized like now we have two people that are sleep deprived running through the house with this new baby. And one of my investors at the time, I was, I was running a company called Clarity. And he, he said on a board meeting, just he's like, how's things? You know, I'm not sleeping. He goes, oh, you don't have a night nanny? And I was like, what's a night nanny? And then he explained it to me. That is literally a woman that stays with you at night that will bring the baby to my wife. She can breastfeed. And then afterwards, she takes the baby away for, to, for burping and all that stuff. And then my wife can sleep. I can sleep. And we're better for each other. And in the grand scheme of things, the baby's not going to like remember who burped it, right? Like, Because here's what's crazy is back in the day, that was the mother-in-law typically, right? So like you, we had support in our communities and we kind of went away from that and we forgot that we're allowed to evaluate our time and our calendar and our, our mental, emotional space through the same lens. Like I'm a better dad if I go to the gym. So if, if for whatever reason, my calendar doesn't allow me to work out, that affects the way I show up as a dad for my kids. Like I remember a long time ago, Cause you know, my dad was traveling a lot growing up. I made a commitment to myself. I will never say no to my kids to play with them. Right. And like, that's crazy. Cause I've got two, my two boys are 11 months apart. They're Irish twins. So they're incredibly active. And like one day I was doing 75 hard, which is this like mental toughness yes. program. That. And I'd already done two workouts and it was five o'clock. And my youngest son, Noah goes, Hey, can we go downtown for dinner tonight? Just you and I, and take our bikes. I live at the top of a mountain, okay? And like a significant mountain, like thousands of feet of elevation that I knew that if I descended with my son, because this is what happens, I have to tow him back up on the mountain bikes. And I was beat. And I immediately, I was like, absolutely. And then he turned and I looked at my wife and my wife had known like, hey, I'd already done two workouts. I had a full day. She's like, are you sure? And I'm like, I'm going to do it. And it, and it, that night created this like special moment. We went, bought some pizza, went to the waterfront, sat on the grass, you know, talked about school and his buddies and, and yeah, I towed him all the way back up, but like, I would have never been able to do that had I not had the space in my calendar to work on me and have the strength and energy to keep going. Like the ROI of you having more capacity is huge. Like most people they can't work more because their, their, their capacity is limited because they've not developed the muscle, right? They haven't given them permission to 
do like energy management of their tasks. That's why we talk about a time and energy audit. Once you start stacking things that light you up, man, I'll, I'll end up five o'clock and I'm like jazzed and I get out and my wife's like, Oh, Oh no, 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 no. Go back in your <laughs> office and do your thing to reset. Cause you can't bring that hyper energy around me. Right. Like I just get, I get pumped, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I'm just so passionate about this. Cause I really want to expose it to more entrepreneurs. Cause I think once they start doing it, they're going to be like, why was I working any other way? Like this is, this is a sustainable, this is bigger. And that's why the subtitle of my book is and create your empire. It's not a four hour work week. It's, it's do these things, get unstuck and build your empire. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people are like, even thinking back to when we first hired a nanny, like I was a little uneasy about it, but I knew it was the right thing to do to get to where we wanted to be five years from then. Uh, and and I, I think a lot of it, just thinking about the future when you're making those decisions where you're not thinking of it as an expense, but you're seeing it as a legit investment and in, you're either an investment back in quality time or just time that you can put to growing your business or or doing the work that's going to move the most dials in the business and um that that's why I, your book was so powerful when when i read it i appreciate you giving me a, a a copy before it's released um when it does come out where where can everyone find this this book go it's at buybackyourtime.com so that's where people want to go just go to the site you can find it on amazon but then come back to buybackyourtime.com because my publisher wouldn't let me put in a lot of like the templates and the, the blueprints. So I have a lot of things like the preloaded year and the perfect week template and the vivid vision and all these things that I talk about in the book. So you have to go download the resources there, um, but it's available on all retailers. I read the audio book and I added bonus content. Like I wanted to make it oh, awesome. a next level experience. Um, and I spent two and a half years of my life dedicated with my book team, buyback principal at his best, editors, researchers, you know, multiple edits and outlines to just make sure that it every word served a purpose. Like just wanted to make sure I put the best thing out there to talk about the specific problem of buying back your time. And I'm incredibly proud of what the team and I put together. So I would love anybody who reads it. If it serves you, please leave a review. That's like, people are always like, how can I help you, Dan? That would be like the ultimate. Just if you leave a review on Amazon, it'll help me build the flywheel that I'm, I'm looking to create. Yeah, you should definitely be proud of that book. It was amazing. Um, it was funny, a lot of times when I, I have a guest on that has written a book, like I'll pick up the book, I'll sort of skim through it and, and grab a few highlights. And I picked up the book and I, I sort of went into it with the same attitude. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll skim through and started reading the first chapter. And I, I, I believe the first chapter was talking about just your story. And uh, I just got hooked and like literally did not put the book down the entire day. Um, and pretty much finished like 90% of the book in the first day I read it. So that's rare for me to do that. Um, so the, but your, your book hooked me in with exactly what you're talking about and a lot of problems that we see entrepreneurs face and, and really the thing that's limiting their success and growth in their business is, is, is time management and, and allocating the, the time to the right places. So I just want to thank you for writing that book just selfishly for me, um, because it, it, made me reevaluate some things and in, in how I was doing time management and then um, just hit home some new concepts of being more optimized with it. So uh, thank you so much for that. My pleasure, Adam. I appreciate you sharing that and, um, you know, the opportunity to share this with your audience. It means the world. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dan. Uh, and I know you, you allocate your time 
very carefully, and I appreciate you giving us an hour of your time today uh, to educate our audience. Cool. Have an amazing day, Adam. Thanks so much.